Greetings programs. We are back for another episode of Bureau 42 Greatest Science Fiction Film Tournament Podcasts. And their most frequent hosts are myself, Blaine Dowler. And Alex Case. And as you may have guessed, this time around we're talking about Tron from 1982. A movie that came out back when the Wachowskis were in their teens and well before Wreck-It Ralph hit the screens. So, as usual, we're going to open up a little bit talking about our personal histories with these films. I saw this movie when it came out in theaters in 1982. It was out July 9th. I probably saw it a few weeks after that because we didn't go opening week most nights, especially when my sister and I were that young. My parents just decided, let's wait till it's a you know calmer theater with not as many people there. And I've pretty much loved this movie from the start. Yeah, for me, first time I saw this movie, much as with Black Hole last time, was I saw it on the Disney Channel. Because we didn't go out to see movies in theaters much, and I think by the time I was old enough for parents to be taking me to theaters, it wasn't in theaters, so I couldn't have gone to see, gone to see it anyway. Yeah, it didn't have the longest run. I mean, like as it is when this came out, I wasn't actually born yet, so... Yeah, so it's probably out of theaters by the time you're old enough to appreciate it, even if it's out while you're still yeah. alive. So this was another of the early PG movies from Disney. Three years following the black hole, this one almost qualified for the general rating. There is quite literally one shot near the end that pushed it into PG, and they decided to stick with it. Which is kind of funny, because that shot near the end, to me, if I were a parent, I'd be less concerned about that than I would be about some of the stuff we saw early on. But just in case any of you haven't seen Tron, well, if you haven't, shame on you. It's not hard to get a copy of it at all. No, it is very common. It is a bit of a cult classic. It didn't perform exactly as people had hoped in the box office in the original run, but it is definitely a respectable movie. And it is the first, that's why I brought up the Wachowskis, it's really the first movie about a world inside the computer that can be inhabited by real people, or at least particular people. So the way that it's set up, we get some very clear characters and very nice with set up without exposition right from day one. The opening shot is the, on the opening sequence, I should say, is the only time we see intercutting between the real world and the digital world. And Jeff Bridges' character of Kevin Flynn is front and center, both in his regular persona and in the persona of a program he's created named Clue that we will come back to in much more detail in a later podcast. He's communicating almost conversationally with his program as it cuts back and forth. After that time, we get large stretches of the real world, large stretches of the computer world, and then wrap it up in the real world once more. And so just a brief summary of the setup. Essentially, Kevin Flynn used to be one of the employees of Encom, which is a massive computer conglomerate out there right now. Sort of like a mix between Microsoft and IBM, probably more on the IBM big iron side of things. It is ultimately. I mean, they talk about the founder starting the company in his garage, which is a, a bit of a Steve Jobs kind of thing. But yeah, in, in its current state, when the founder had been sort of pushed out and with Dillinger now running the show, played by David Warner, it is, to outward appearances at least, very much an IBM. And we've got a few programmers, one of whom is played by Bruce Boxleitner. He's Alan T. Bradley, and I think we can guess what the T stands for. Is named for Alan Turing. And he's been locked out of all level seven programs. Anyone with level seven security access has been locked out of the system by the master control program, which is now running things. And this is a world where in 1982, every program ever written can pass the Turing test. <laughs> so he goes to meet with Dillinger, finds out, well, everyone's been locked up because there's somebody tampering in level seven and Dillinger's just doing what the MCP told him to do, which is not something that Alan really wanted to hear. 
you know, he seems to be of the impression that computers should work for people and not do their own thing, which is a common mindset amongst the characters we are intended to sympathize with here. He goes to visit his girlfriend who works in another department and is one of the early, very strong female characters in film. And we'll get into that a little bit later. She's working with the company's founder on a laser that can digitize things. So basically turn them into nothing and then put them back together again. Now, last time there was some discussion about whether or not Neil deGrasse Tyson was correct in saying that the black hole is the most scientifically inaccurate movie of all time. I say this is much higher on that list. Yeah. (laughs) As much as we were able to go through and criticize the black hole, this is worse. Yeah, I mean, I, on the one hand, this movie kind of helped get me really interested in computers and want me to become, get into IT and that sort of thing. But on the other hand, coming back and watching it now, I go, yeah, no, no. I mean, like, the computer interfaces we see this far are incredibly natural language. I mean, to a certain degree, movies like to do sort of very natural language interfaces where you can just type in the computer, open this file, please, and it will open this file, as opposed to having to go, dear, name a directory, then word.exe slash um, space script for episode dot doc or what have you transcript dot doc. Yeah. And a lot of that is to remove the operating system independence, right? You don't want to only have the audience who uses the same operating system as your characters following along. If you invent your own operating system, which is a lot more natural, then you eliminate that and the audience should be able to follow what's going on. Or if they can't, it's not because they don't understand what you're asking the computers to do. This is one of those cases. It does take a fair amount of liberty in that respect. Although a lot of people criticized it for in the 1980s for being so far beyond what computers could ever do. Not what they could do, but what they could ever do. If you want to criticize it for saying computers are nowhere close to that point in 1982, fine, go for it. But the people who criticized it because computers could never get there are getting quieter and quieter every year. (laughs) So anyway, Alan tells his story to Laura. And apparently she used to be in a relationship with Kevin Flynn and wants to go warn him because she realizes he's probably the guy trying to break in and doing the tampering at level seven that they're concerned about. So they go visit Flynn in the arcade that he's running. And this is when Alan discovers that all of these million dollar programs and these video games that really put Dillinger and Encom on the map were actually created by Kevin Flynn and stolen by Dillinger. So they plan to basically break back into Encom that night so that Alan can let loose his independent security program, Tron, which has the MCP scared. And so Flynn can get the information he needs and the evidence he needs to prove that these millions of dollars that Dillinger has were basically stolen from him. In the process, the MCP picks up on it and blasts him with a laser and digitizes him and sucks him into the computer world. There is a bit here that I do like where... Remind me a bit of, of Kirk's interactions with AIs in Star Trek, where in an attempt to detra- distract the MCP, Flynn basically has him run through the whole list of unsolvable problems, like calculate pi to the last decimal place, and that sort of thing, that Kirk uses to distract, I think it's Regic in the episode Wolf in the Fold? Yeah, yeah, it's the, the same idea. There were a few homages in that early piece. But this is also the part where, even as a four, possibly five-year-old child, depending on when we saw this, it was rubbing me the wrong way because this came out just shy of two months before my fifth birthday. I saw it in theaters. So it was probably close to five. And I remember seeing the laser blasting Flynn from behind and just sort of scanning across him and digitizing him piece by piece. And I remember sitting in that theater asking myself, how does this work? First of all, is his blood not pumping anymore? Because it's not coming out when they, they take part of his fingers off. 
Second, what about the back of the chair? He's sitting in a chair. The laser is behind him. And as it's digitizing him piece by piece, when you see him from the front, the chair is not visible. But at the end of the movie, when they put him back together, the back of the chair wasn't touched. It was sitting there. So how did the laser scan him through the chair? That was an issue. Uh, scanning his clothes and him not wearing those clothes when he got inside was an issue for me. The little 3D light grid that surrounded him was another one that bugged me. Because even when I was five, I was thinking, wait, if you have a box of light around there, what's making the box turn? Because light goes in straight lines. So even if it's making this grid, and even then it should be emitted, because if it's just light in that grid, it's not hitting your eyes, so you can't see it. Which means if we could see it, then there's light spraying from a grid of something else as it surrounds him. And the last thing that bugged me was that it was a static laser that can point in one direction, and yet the beam was moving and bending and scanning across him. The biggest problem I had with that was the beam spread, like seeming to spread and that sort of thing without the thing actually moving. Because on the other hand, when we see him come out at the end of the movie, he comes out all at one black like in a second. So mm -hmm. I kind of, on repeat viewings, kind of went, oh, okay, is they're, they're super slowing it down as a narrative conceit for the audience to make it dramatic, a thinking poetic license. But in theory, if you, if you actually did this to a human, it would be much faster. And probably the grid is a similar sort of... It's a construct that exists for the computer in terms of a way of interpreting portions of whatever it's targeting, but the, the grid doesn't actually appear in real life. Um, we kind of get a bit of that with whenever we get around to talk about the next movie. But, I mean, yeah, it is scientifically not good <laughs> in terms of accuracy. It is, yeah. That's, that entire sequence of how he gets sucked into the computer and the fact that he retains all of his memories and can move around in a computer that wouldn't have enough storage capacity to do that in the era, those are pills you just need to swallow. Mm -hmm. That's the MacGuffin that gets the plot going, right? That's like accepting that the baby from Krypton has powers because of our son and his dense molecular structure, right? That's... Sometimes in some science fiction or basically movies with a fantasy element, there's a piece you must just simply accept if you're going to go through. And because the rest of Tron is so strong, I'm willing to accept that. As opposed to something like The Last Action Hero, which actually does have some decent parody elements in it. Houdini's magic ticket is just too big a pill to swallow for me to go back and watch it again. There are things that were worth a legitimate chuckle the first time through. But this is worth rewatching, and the rest of the movie is entertaining enough I can forgive this little piece, because it is just what we need to get it going. In a lot of ways, we could just say, okay, they made the video games in the arcade and the computers look like 1982 because they had the idea in 1982. It wouldn't surprise me if, you know, decades from now or at some point in the future that I'm not equipped to predict, we could do something comparable to Tron, not put your physical body inside a computer, but when we understand the way the brain works well enough and have more complicated computers, I believe we will be able to put a, at least a very convincing simulation of an individual's consciousness within a machine and run that way. But that's a long ways off. We still don't have the computer power to do that in general. Again, that's just MacGuffin to get it going. And that's when Flynn gets to meet an accounting program played by the great Peter Jurassic. Yep. And this we get to one of the also great first meetings of two actors who would be probably better known for later roles moments where we have character of Ram, an actuarial program, and see him alongside Tron. Tron is played by Bruce Boxleitner, who is perhaps best known after Tron for his role on Babylon 5 as John Sheridan. And... Mm -hmm. Dan Shore, uh, not, uh, not um, Crom is in here mm -hmm. in the scene. It's uh, played by Peter Jurassic. Not the same scene, yeah. actually. Okay, so Crom, played by Peter Jurassic, is would later go on to be on 
Babylon 5 as Londo Malari. Yeah, this is the first of three projects that the two of them worked on together, and Babylon 5 is the first time they share the screen. Yeah. They are both in Tron, but Jurassic and Boxleitner didn't meet at any time while Tron was being filmed, just because of the way their shooting schedules played out. Peter Jurassic later guest stars in an episode of Scarecrow and Mrs. King, but he only interacts with Mrs. King, whereas Bruce Boxleitner played the Scarecrow. So they met on set, but still never shared the screen. <laughs> So the first time they actually shared a screen together was the third project that they were both in. Now, Dan Shore, as you mentioned, he plays Ram, who's the insurance annuities calculator program. He's probably going to come up in these podcasts again because he's better known to some generations, at least, as Billy the Kid from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, now I remember what I've seen him for. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. He was on Star Trek The Next Generation. He was, oh, and he was in, he was in Air Force One. I'm not sure who he played in that. Yeah, I blanked most of that movie from my memory, which may be a psychological defense mechanism. <laughs> Probably. He also plays in the real world one of the co-workers of Alan Bradley in a very brief cameo in the real world version, the one who asked for his popcorn. Yep, in the scene that was actually shot in Disney Animator Cubicles. So some of those cubicles are real. They used a matte painting to make it appear to go on to infinity, which is the way they pictured the internal computer world as infinite. But yeah, it was a, a nice little shot, and he's got a very quick roll there. So they do a good job of putting it together, especially when we find out how the film was actually made on the back end. Yeah. Tron is best known in a lot of film study circles for completely innovating in its visual look. So when you're in the computer, these characters are positively glowing, and they've got these outfits that pulse, and the, the light levels and colors represent moods and energy levels and alignments between good and evil, for the lack of a better word. And yet, a lot of that is done painstakingly. Disney was quite literally the only production company equipped to make this movie happen. Yep. Between the hand animation on the in-universe characters to color their skin tones and to get the right glowing colors on the characters and because the way they shot it like when you see the tron lines in the outfit what that was done in the movie was they basically had a kind of reflective tape on the outfits and then had a light behind the camera that was shining on the tape and would make them glow back on glow on the film as part of it but then there's but then um, yeah that's actually how they did the vehicles that wasn't how they did the okay outfits. So all, all the vehicles in the physical sets, including the red Encom helicopter we see at the beginning, which is the same silver and black Encom helicopter we see at the end, that was silver reflective tape, and they filmed it under a bright ah, red light. All right, I miss. And that's how they did the the stands. Yeah, the the outfits were leotards with the patterns drawn in black sharpie. Ah, okay. And animators went through frame by frame painting the light on top. Ah, yeah, I got those slightly backwards in my head. Yeah, and they actually sent the animation for that to Taiwan because uh, there was just so much of it and they just didn't have enough animators to do it on time otherwise. Yeah, and they didn't have enough willing animators. A lot of the Disney animators didn't want to touch it. They didn't want to touch Tron at all because they were afraid that Disney was going to replace hand-drawn animation with computer animation. Thirteen years later, Disney announced that they were going to decommission their traditional animation department in a decision that was only reversed when they bought out Pixar and John Lasseter said, you guys are idiots, open it up again. <laughs> right? It's not just the business, it's the art form. We need both. So kudos to John Lasseter, who's best known for his CGI animation, for saying, no, 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 this world needs both. Don't drop what you were better at than, well, almost anyone. I still put the Fleischers on top. Yeah. Also, once we get into the computer world, we get two big names coming into the equation in terms of, dis terms of concept design and storyboarding. Originally, the director, Steve Lisberger, did the uh, original storyboards, but 
and they have them on some of them on the DVD if you're interested in going and taking a look at what the storyboards are, but they resemble nothing like what we get in the final film. A lot of the final look of the film can be credited to Mobius, who is probably one of the best graphic art, most famous graphic artists to come out of France. Real name is, I'm going to mangle this, Jean Giraud. Gerard. Also probably the best Silver Surfer artist in history. Yeah, and he basically redid the storyboards for large chunks of the movie and was responsible for a lot of what we think of the, of the iconic Tron look. I've seen pictures through various sites of like his final art for, for example, Dumont, the Guardian program, which is incredible. Also, we have working on the vehicle concept art, Sid Mead, who we'll be talking about more when we get to Blade Runner few other films as well. Uh, Sid Mead did a massive amount of concept artwork for movies back in the 70s and 80s, and his style is really impressive. And unfortunately, not as much of his stuff has been realized in real life as I'd like, because he has a great style, and having seen some of his concept arts of like cars that he's done, I wouldn't mind driving some of those. <laughs> yeah, this does have an amazing look, and the time and effort it took to put it together, this goes beyond hand drawing in those colored lines on every single character. And then integrating that with the computer-generated backgrounds and sometimes hand-drawn backgrounds. In order to have enough space on the film to work with it, they decided to film in 65mm. Now, at the time, most film was 35mm. That's what we're typically used to. And when they talk about millimeters of film, that's the actual width of the film. So for the Imperial users among us who aren't totally comfortable with the metric system, 25.4 millimeters are an inch. And in fact, the inch is officially defined by the scientific community as 2.54 centimeters. So even now, the imperial system is defined in relation to the metric system. So on the most fundamental level, even imperial users are using metric. But that gives you an idea of the scale of the film. So 25.4 millimeters make an inch. Most of the film from the early 70s into the late 90s, most movies were recorded on 35 millimeter film. 65 millimeter gives a clearer picture because you have more space to record it. But one of the issues with that is you need a much larger lens to throw that light onto a larger area. And you need a different lens complex to make sure it remains in focus. And that causes some limitations in terms of what you can film. One of the key parts of cinematography is something called depth of focus. So most people have noticed, especially when they're watching older movies, that objects at different points on the screen are at different levels of focus. So if you've got a character in the middle of a very large room, often that character in the front and center is in focus and the backgrounds aren't, especially if you're doing width with what they call cinemascope or anamorphic technologies. So anamorphic is when the picture is compressed horizontally. So if you look at the film itself, it's distorted. Those lenses have a shorter depth of focus than the so-called flat lens, where there's nothing distorted on the film. So most TV shows were a flat lens at 4x3, you could have the entire depth of a large room in focus because you have a greater depth of focus. But in a movie like Star Wars, if you go back to the originals where you've got the anamorphic widescreen, some of the stuff in the background can't stay in focus when characters in the foreground are. With the shift to 65mm, it means you can have that widescreen experience and more detail on the film without compressing it, which is key when you're going to have people animating the colors in by hand. They couldn't have an anamorphic or a compressed version. The downside to that is that the depth of focus gets very, very narrow. So there are scenes where you've got Ram, Tron, and Flynn, for example, lined up. So after Flynn's first successful win in the game, after he defeats Peter Jurassic's character Krom, when they're in line and 
Flynn says, I know your your user's name is Alan. My user knows him. We're supposed to work together to shut down the MCP. That little conversation, if you look carefully, you'll notice that characters are jittering with respect to the background, but not all of them. So sometimes just Tron jitters, sometimes just Ram jitters, sometimes just Flynn jitters. That jitter is because the, the film was rattling inside the gate and the picture wasn't staying steady. The reason they're jittering one at a time is because they had to be filmed one at a time. The 65 millimeter cameras they were using couldn't keep all three of them in focus simultaneously. They have a hard time in that scene where you've got them at an angle and one shoulder is closer to the camera than the other. If one shoulder's in focus, the other one's out. It was a very precise timing. The cameraman would come up to the director and say, okay, which eye do you want in focus, the right or the left? Because you can't have both in some of these shots. So these actors, when they're interacting and having these conversations, they're not even in the same room. And the reason they're jittering one at a time is because they were filmed one at a time and then all three layers were composited. So that scene where there's three guards that have pushed the three guys up to the back wall and they're having a conversation in front of the background has six layers of film in it. One for each guard, one for each program, and then one more layer for the background they're in front of. Yeesh. And this we're here, we're about to get to what is probably one of the most iconic scenes in the movie since we're here now, the light cycle scene. When it, whenever anybody does anything inspired by this movie, whether it's the sequel, whether it's the video game spinoffs, whether it's when they did a Tron world in Kingdom Hearts 2, you have to have the light cycles. You just can't leave that out. It is an amazing scene. If I describe it to somebody who hadn't seen the movie before, I describe it as the chariot race from Ben-Hur meets Snake Game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is very much what it is, and it inspired a lot of gamers. I remember wanting a light cycle so badly as a child, and that urge never really went away. Not until people actually started making them and I saw the, the sticker price. That's when it mostly went away, but hasn't died completely. And even the very expensive mock-ups you can get right now, they don't leave those neat little walls behind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is a great race. And it also really starts to show how Flynn is different from the programs. Because up to this point, the programs have still been running by the program. Right? You tell them, go over here, they don't argue a whole lot. One little jab, and then the program has fallen in line. Flynn is the character that can think outside of the box. He is the reason that this uprising is successful, because he's not restricted by a program. And it's not until he has direct physical contact with any other programs that they can do that too. So Tron was doing things strictly by the book until Flynn touched him. Yori was doing things strictly by the book until Tron touched her afterwards. And I mean, that scene comes much later. But you can see he's even confused by her until she tu- he touches her and then she has a bit of an awakening. So you can see Flynn impacting those around him as he goes through. Which is a pretty, it's a subtle touch. It's not something that they ever draw attention to in the dialogue. Which is, there's a lot of subtle touches that they never draw attention to in the dialogue. And in fact, some stuff I said we'd talk about, but we skipped over, so we should probably double back to that. Yuri is based on Laura's character. And like I said, she is now Alan's current love interest and Flynn's past love interest. But she is not a damsel in distress. She is not a minor character. She is the one working with the head of the company. When they're trying to break in, they're using her keys to do it. When they're at the door, she's not sure if she has clearance for it. And Alan's going, well, I sure don't. So we know she's got higher clearance than he does. And there's one subtle thing that they did here. This is the earliest example I can ever think of. And I'm having a hard time even thinking of a second example where we're looking at a Hollywood movie with a couple driving together and the woman is behind the wheel. I hadn't thought about it that way. Yeah, that's, that is pretty distinct. 
there's no reason that the woman can't be driving in any situation. This is the only time I could think of where that's actually happened on screen. Uh, no, I can think of a couple. Um, there's a couple 50s B horror movies I've seen where they where they did that. Like one of the Invisible Man knockoffs where, oh God, I forget the name of the movie, but the main character was a safecracker who's broken out of prison. Anyway, his, his getaway driver's a woman, that. And that was from the... Pretty sure that was the, the 50s or si- late 50s, maybe early 60s, because it was a black and white film. Okay. Could be. Yeah, I haven't seen all of the Invisible Man movies. I must have given up on the franchise well, before that. It, it's, it's not specifically a Invisible Man movie, but it is a Invisible Person movie. Okay. It, it's it's a knockoff. It's a fairly blatant knockoff. Okay. But yeah, that's it's something that's all too rare, and it's something that I found nice to see. Some of the other things that were going on with them when Flynn and uh, Alan first meet. One of Flynn's questions to Alan is, does she still leave her clothes on the floor? (laughs) And Alan's response is, no, not all the time. (laughs) And that was something that's kind of surprising to see slipped into a, a Disney film. So we get a pretty clear idea about what her past relationship with with Flynn was like and what her current relationship with Alan is like, even though none of them are wearing rings. So that's that's not a typical thing to see, especially in a PG-rated Disney film from the early 1980s. Yeah. So I, I did like that. If you go through the deleted scenes, there's a love scene with her that was cut where she's pretty much in control of the situation the entire time, which is also different. Typically, when you've got that love scene, it's the man seducing the woman, and this is very much the other way around. I mean, normally when that happens, she's the femme fatale who's about to stab him in the back. But no, this was just a a genuine scene. So that is one thing I really enjoyed about this movie. There's only the one prominent female character out of the five, I would say, prominent characters in this film. At least prominent partly because they exist in both worlds. If you include Ram and Crom, it bumps up to seven. But if you look at the company founder who inspires Dumont, if you look at Dillinger who inspires Sark and the MCP. Yeah, because the MCP is an uncredited voice acting appearance by David Warner, who plays Dillinger and Sark with some digital masking on there to make him sound more electronic. Yeah, yeah, he certainly is. And he created the MCP. We even mentioned that earlier. And in that same scene where Dumont says that the spirit of guys like myself and Alan are still in every program we created, that's the idea of the representation. So Dillinger's spirit, per se, is in both Sark and the MCP. Whereas Flynn's is in Clue, which is why he was played by Jeff Bridges. Bruce Boxleitner's character Alan is in Tron, which is why he's also played by Bruce Boxleitner. We've got uh, Laura, who works on the, the laser project. Her program was running the digital beam transport, right? which is, you know, the beam you get inside. It's not going to be exactly a laser beam because you don't have light inside a computer, although apparently you still see things and you still have gravity. So there's, again, major questions there about the interface that at least the, the Matrix sidesteps them by saying, no, we're simulating your reality. So you can buy into it a bit. I'm not quite sure how the world of Tron works and don't really care yeah. that much. One of the bit we skipped over here is while some of this is going on with Tron and Yori, so Tron and Alan, so Tron and Flynn have been separated. They attempt to escape. They get pursued by a bunch of basically MCP security in tanks, which is starts off with this great line: "I shouldn't have written so many tank programs." And they're separated. When a one of the tanks hits a bridge they're going over, Tron goes one way, and he thinks that Flynn is dead, and that Ram is dead, and indeed Ram is kind of dying. And part of this, as Flynn is running away, fleeing with Ram, he basically hides in a junkyard and manages to flex his user muscles a little more, and reconstitute a otherwise destroyed recognizer. 
which is where I start first really getting into just how much the users can kind of do, a, a user in the real world can do if he gets brought into the digital world. Yeah, yeah, he does have a lot more interaction with the system from that point. It's a bit of a turning point. Up to this point, he's just saying this isn't happening. It only thinks it's happening, and he's believing it's a dream or he's somehow out of it. And then as he starts to accept the the situation, he really starts to push his limits. And it's nice. We see a lot of dichotomy between Flynn and Alan and between Tron and Flynn within the computers. They are similar to each other. So Jeff Bridges plays Flynn and to a lesser extent, Clue, in a very physical way. Right When they're sneaking through, he's doing a little bit of an overplayed, immature, kind of tricky walk. He's constantly moving and running his fingers through his hair and things like that in the apartment scene. And Alan is very controlled and very contained and very pragmatic and almost to the point of pessimism. And in the computers, it's the same sort of thing, except we see Tron is extremely capable. He's still pragmatic. Right? He still has an air of that, you know, that pragmatism, almost pessimism, but you put him in a fight. He fights for the users, he wins, right? You see him kicking a lot of butt in this movie. Whereas in the digital realm, Flynn is not as secure and he kind of has to grow up a little bit. So instead of doing the sort of goofy walk, he's really trying and often pushing it. And this is around the time where he grows up and starts to mature and starts to see, okay, what can I do, right? He can't just coast and ride it on his, you know, apparent programming genius. He's got to do something that hasn't been done before. And he's got to lead these guys because they're not going to be able to do it without him. He just can't make the programs and let some bean counters do it. That was his problem. He was ready to start an enterprise when Dillinger stole the programs. Had he taken the programs to ENCOM rather than deciding to break out on his own, he could have been in Dillinger's position from the start. But, you know, he wasn't quite at that maturity to say, yeah, I can produce my own programs using company resources. That doesn't mesh. And he grows up and he obviously makes a deal with them by the time the movie's done. But we're seeing a lot of that with him. He's immature, and that's, like I said, where he starts to get into the physical side and starts to realize that there's consequences to the actions with the recognizer and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also it's also at this point where Ram dies, where we have our sort of our, our second major character death in the movie in terms of well, no, it's quite major character. I mean, he's a supporting character, but he's at this point we think, oh, he's our sidekick character. This is our big our big three because we haven't really spent much time with Lori yet. No. I mean, up to this point, the only character we've seen die is Krom, and Krom seems to exist for the sake of establishing what death means in this world. Mm-hmm. Right. That the programs can die. They call it derezzing in every instance save one. They refer to it as deresolution instead of death. But that's what it is. So Krom is there. So we learn, oh, you lose the games, you're dead. Just to, to give us the stakes. Then when they go through the games, now Ram is the first death that's actually supposed to really mean something to the audience. All right. We, so this happens, so while Tron and Yori are making their way to the Tower Guardian, and with Sark kind of being on his way there too, we then have Flynn also making his way there, uh, hoping he kind of runs into them along the way. And we get the scene with, with Dumont, which, another great scene, kind of gets into another bit we haven't talked that much about, which is kind of the spirituality of the computer programs in terms of they refute, re- revere users with kind of a godlike reverence. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the, the line is, users made us, which they did. Yeah, if I don't have a user, who wrote me? Though MCB kind of disputes this, saying, hey, I'm worth millions of their man hours, because he's advanced to a point that he can expand himself and just by on his own accord. Yeah, he's now 2,415 times smarter than he was when, when Dillinger made him. Yeah, and Dumont sort of has this, who's the Tower Guardian, has this sort of temple priest air to him in terms of the robes and accoutrement of his, accoutrements of his job compared to what the other programs are wearing. And he has this sort of spiritual, almost spiritual 
the little thing he says before he lets Tron pass to communicate with Alan. All that is visible must grow beyond itself and extend into the realm of the invisible, which is very spiritual, a very spiritual statement. It is. That's been showing up a lot in the movies I've been watching lately, not just our last stint on Black Hole, but for those listening at home, this is recorded right around the same time that Mission Log has done Star Trek V, which also had a lot to say about spirituality and religion. Yeah. It said it with a lisp, a stutter, and a seriously impeded vocabulary, but it had stuff it wanted to say. <laughs> Indeed. And so there's that. And we in turn get your, though we get one weird logic hole here, a plot hole. So in order to get in, Tron and Yori have to climb up the side of the building and slide through a window on an upper level. The front door is being guarded by guards. However, they're spotted coming in, and so Demond has to seal the door while the guards come and they try to bash down the door with a logic probe. However, once Tron has finished communicating with his user, there is in fact now a back door that they can slip out of without any problems and without being observed. Yeah. Well, there are, there's a few talk about logic gates and other things. It, in a world of computers, there may be some things that are only one-way traffic. Yeah, that's true. Solely input or solely output. So that, I can accept that in, in the computer-based world, it's not like Walmart. If the door says enter, you can only enter. If the door says exit, you can only exit. Yeah, you're, you're probably right. You're, you're right. So, I mean, it's it, it may have been a, a logic call at the script level, but it's one we can hand wave away if we choose to. Yeah. Your next scene after this is the Solar Sailor sequence, which is uh, which is well done. Though I can, there's a scene there which it's clear that they had, they had an action sequence in mind, but they weren't able to do anything with it, or either due to time constraints or budget. There is this CG effect or animated effect for the grid bugs that there's that we see them and we're told uh, from Miori, uh oh, grid bugs, we need to watch out for them. And I get the impression is they had a scene in mind where the grid bugs would attack either the solar sailor or maybe some recognizers that are coming after them, but nothing really ever came of it. No, which I'm okay with because the grid bugs in the style of the recognizers and the tanks and the other ones that are CG wireframes that are animated as they're going through, but they are very clearly hand-drawn to the point that when sort of the periscope scene turns around, we get the comedic animated spin motion lines where it becomes a cylinder and actually changes shape. And that's what's bothered me since my first viewing, because that, that sequence did stand out. I'm not sure why they left those seconds in there, because as you said, they never come back to it. And the only time they discuss the grid bugs is in a voiceover that layers right over that one shot. I don't know why they didn't just pull those four or five seconds out and leave them out and be done with it. The audience never would have known they were missing something. Now it feels like we're missing something, because as you say, they never come back to them. They're just there. Yeah. Yeah, that is a bit of an issue. We also get our second surprise cameo in that sequence. This is one, if you pay close attention, when the solar sail is flying over the landscape, there's a giant digital lake in the shape of Mickey Mouse's head. Yep. And earlier in the film, the first surprise cameo, Pac-Man appears on Sark's screens. Uh, complete with, with sound effects, with the Pac-Man game sound effects. Yep, and the little yellow dots following in front of him through a little path he could go through, mm. so... So Solar Sailor scene is also the next point where Flynn really starts flexing his user muscle, where they get a power surge that kind of slows them down so that some recognizers are about to catch up to them, and Flynn basically creates a junction point on the, the grid that the Solar Sailor is traveling on to get them hooked up to a parallel beam so they can get out of the way of the power surge. Which he claims he could do elementary physics. A beam of energy can always be redirected. I've done a couple of physics courses. I don't remember ever running across that principle. And when I say a couple, I mean 34. 
So. <laughs> I figured you have something to say about that. <laughs> yeah, between that and the fact that the, the power seems to be coming from in front of them, that power surge approached them. And the way he redirected it, basically, there, there is no momentum in this universe. Although the, the characters behave as though they're in momentum, they have momentum, this solar sail doesn't. It's a great image, and it serves the plot well. And also because what that does, it, we don't just get this great image of the solar sail running on this beam of light that it interrupts and sort of absorbs through the front and ejects through the back. But it also means this is a type of vehicle that, yeah, you do believe something that simple could be manned by basically one person. So again, Yuri or Laura is driving while the other guys are just hanging around doing other things. They're running through it. She's in control. And then when they need to move junctions, they need to move junctions. This is not going to outmaneuver the recognizers and it's not going to outthink them. They're stuck on this track. So they'll get them where they want to go. But it also means once people realize they're on that track, they know exactly where to find them, which ramps up the difficulty there. And that's why Sark's sailing barge is able to overtake them and basically capture them within for some of the final sequences before they take over that massive, their, that massive sailing barge and Yuri drives. Yep. And this leads to the show, the scene which got this movie a PG rating, which is the showdown on, they call it a mesa, but we don't really get a, a wider landscape, so we can't say if it's actually a mesa or not, between Sark and Tron. This seems particularly interesting because if you've seen David Warner like in a lot of stuff, even from around the same time, you know he's not a very physically built guy. He's fairly wiry, and so he's not quite catching up to the same speed that Tron is, that that um, Bruce Boxleitner is Tron as in terms for some of the jumps and that sort of thing. But he's still doing some fairly physical stuff here. He is, yeah. Or he's really able to convey that impression. Even if you really sit down and watch him, he's not moving all that much. And it should stand out more than it does because just because the issues they have with the depth of focus in the cameras, if there's human beings on screen, the cameras don't move either. Yeah. The only time we have the appearance of moving camera is when it's a CG shot. But the way David Werner carries himself, you believe he's imposing and straining while he's doing these motions. But... Once it was pointed out to me, listening to the commentary, that the camera doesn't move when humans are on it, I started paying close attention. And he's his fighting is about as agile as Arnold Schwarzenegger's tango dancing in True Lies. But David Warner is such a far superior actor, he can hide it so it doesn't scream out at the audience like Arnold Schwarzenegger's tango dancing in True Lies, where he stood there while the woman danced around him. <laughs> and then they won a contest. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's done very well. And as Alex said, this is where the PG comes from. Because when Tron takes down Sark, he takes down Sark with his identity disc, a.k.a. a Frisbee. That's the prop, but that's something that they've really been stressing. This is your information disc. It defines you. Do not lose it. This is everything kind of prop. And they they use it kind of like Frisbee. So it's a throwing weapon that can be used to defend as well as to attack. And he rips right through Sark's forehead with it. Yep, and Sark goes down. We see we, we, we see his brain, and when he goes down, little bits of clock fall out of him, basically. Fall out of his skull. Yeah, yeah, those are the props. You can't really tell their clock parts here, but it's just whatever these guys have on the inside is coming out. Mm-hmm. And you believe Sark is going to de-res, and the MCP knows it too. And the MCP, which has managed to control everything doesn't have the same physical presence in this world as the rest, because he's all about consuming the information. And the information we see here is more energy. It's more lines. That's what he's got. 
So he is just a cylinder with a little ball neck in the bottom and a face on it who can control others. So he imparts his power and subroutines and, you know, as he says, my functions are now yours. On to Sark, who grows. And that growing effect was, relatively speaking, pretty cheap and easy to accomplish in this movie. Because if you're already talking about filming every character independently and then overlaying them frame by frame in the post-production, making one guy look a lot bigger than the rest is not going to be an issue. Mm-hmm. So... We have the MCB is kind of basically holding off a fairly basic defense if he can make a, fee- a force field that Tron's disc can't get through. So he he makes Sark grow, and so Flynn and Yori need to distract the MCP so that Tron can na- and take it out. And so after Flynn has a I'm I'm, I'm taking one for the team kiss for uh, Yori. For, I I don't especially describe it. But it's a, it's a big kiss, but it's like the it's the kind of kiss the hero does before he goes to face death kind of kiss. Mm-hmm. And then he jumps basically right down the MCP's throat. Yeah, and that's another big step because it it teaches Yuri something new. He's able to distract the MCP long enough for Tron to get his disc in, as those of us who played the 1982 video game will remember quite clearly, because that was accurately represented by the game. Yeah, and that's enough for once Tron's disc gets in and imparts the information that Alan Bradley loaded it with. He basically deletes the MCP and restores the system to where it was before unlocking the evidence that Dillinger stole Jeff Bridges' programs in the process, and all of that. Now, it also basically teaches Yori what a kiss is. As I said, there is a deleted scene which has a love scene between Yori and Tron. And in that scene, they're kind of pushing each other's buttons. And I mean that literally. That seems to be basically how they're making love. They are running their fingers over the displays on the other person's outfit, and when they run over the areas with lights, they light up more. That's sort of the lovemaking. And then, you know, when they're celebrating, Yuri kisses Tron. And he's going, oh, that was nice. What was that? (laughs) So this is something that she has learned. Now, you know, that's what happens when they come out. Flynn gets the information he needs. So now he's the one in the Encom helicopter that Dillinger was in. They don't really spell it out in great detail at the end. We just see him come out. He's got the papers he runs to tell Laura and Alan that this has happened. We don't actually see that conversation. And as you said earlier, Alex, he comes back very suddenly. I think it's just, it's resolved. Let's get to the credits as fast as humanly possible. Mm -hmm. So he comes back. He reads the printer. We know what he's got. Dillinger sees what he's got and sits down dejectedly. And then we cut to Alan and Laura on the roof when Alan says, oh, here comes the boss. And then the helicopter comes up, lands. Flynn comes out, greets them warmly. Cut to credits. Yeah. And interestingly, his greeting is greetings programs, which is... (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Is another in joke from the movie, but it is a nice way to do it. Yeah. Now this is, as we said, unfortunately wasn't a huge box office success when it came out. It was released July 9th, 1982. The theatrical runs at the time for most films lasted a lot longer than they do today. So because they weren't putting as many copies out. So it was normal for movies to sell out in the first few weeks and you have to go back later and go back later. You know, there are some movies that were in theaters. I think Gone with the Wind racked up over a hundred weeks. A lot of older movies lasted a long time. In the 80s, a typical run was in the 20 to 25 week range. So that's how long it would stay in theaters. Not necessarily how long it would stay at the local multiplex. When they talk about the weekends and the runs at that time, it would start in the major multiplexes when they calmed down. Then it would start going out to the rural areas because we didn't have the downloading issues. We didn't have the rentals. 
right? You The only way to see a lot of movies was on the big screen for the first couple of years. So when you've got a town that's two hours away from someone else, you could send them that movie four months late and there's still people there who want to see it who haven't seen it yet because it hasn't been convenient to do so. Sadly, Tron's original run only lasted seven weeks. So it was very short. The original production budget was $17 million, and it did make $33 million in the long run. And under $5 million of that was opening weekend. It was a $4.7 million opening weekend. So only 14.4% of its gross, which is interesting because typically short runs have a larger percent of their total weekend gross in that first week. Going through this one, it actually gained in its final week. So that frequently the drop off from week to week was about 10 to 15% at the time. Now it's more like 60 or 70. 70 is typical in a lot of movies when they've got the, the big box office releases and they're out there widely. This lost 23% in the first week, 39% in the second, 45% in the third. So that first month, it was just in free fall in terms of the box office. But oddly, at that point, it stabilized. Now, at that point, the way Bonavista, which is the distribution arm of Disney works, they plan far in advance. I used to work at a theater, and I remember them knowing how many copies they wanted of each movie out in two or three months. It was very, very meticulous and very, very detailed. The question with them was never how many copies we're going to have out. It's, okay, which exhibitors are going to negotiate to give us the biggest cut so that they're, they're the ones that get it for a large part of it. These days, this might have lasted longer. As I said, it, it dropped down by 23, 39.7, and 45.5% of the box office those first few weeks. And then the next week, it lost 0.7%. It was only an $8,000 difference on two weeks that were about $1.2 million each. The next week was about $1 million. The next week, it was up to $1,161,000. So it gained 15.4% in its final week. And it actually gained 105 theaters to be screened on in that week. So it actually was starting to gain ground. It had only made $26 million to date at the end of that initial weekend. It made $33 million grand total. So that last week, it pulled in $7 million. They must have been advertising a last chance to see Tron and pulling it, and people were coming out. So it had what it looks to me like is though Disney still hadn't quite figured out how to market to the teen audience that this was really aimed for. But it had a positive word of mouth, including a very glowing review from Roger Ebert. That was enough that when they said, okay, this is your last chance, people showed up. And that was enough to get them there. So they hadn't figured out how to sell it themselves. But it was a movie people were willing to see and were happy to see once they'd seen it. Yeah, that that, that really sounds like a very slow word of mouth kind of thing. It is. But if you think about word of mouth for uh, a movie aimed at sort of the, the early teen mindset in the pre-internet era, I mean, of course, ARPANET was up and running, but this is 1982. There's no World Wide Web. You're, you certainly weren't able to you know, find six or seven different companies that were willing to, to sell you the dial-up options. 300 Bob modems were available, but it was BBSs in a very select group. And I'm betting that a lot of that group were telling people, oh, go see it, but they weren't big enough to have a significant impact on the production. This is the kind of word of mouth we get from adults talking to adults, and then it bleeds into the teenage generation it's aimed for. Mm-hmm. So it actually did take some time. And looking at these dates now that I've got Box Office Mojo up, I was four when I saw this because it got pulled the day before my fifth birthday. That was the last theatrical date it had. Yeah. Did it get a, a second release in 1983, just out of curiosity? Because Tron is one of the movies which I think, aside from the Star Wars franchise, is probably one of the movies where it has the first to get into big movie licensed games. Because 
Tron had like three different games for the Intellivision back in 1982, and two very highly well-regarded arcade games, just Tron and then Discs of Tron. Discs of Tron replicated the scene we had toward the early portion of the film where Kevin Flynn is forced to play against Crom, played by the Peter Jurassic, the sort of pseudo-Jialai, or however it's pronounced, sequence. Yeah, they did say on the commentary that Hialeah was a major inspiration for that particular game. And the other scene, which is the other game just called Tron, which is a collection of sort of three mini games, or actually five mini games, each based on a particular portion of the movie. There's the MC, the final confrontation with the MCP at the end of the movie. There is a battle tank sequence. Uh, which is based on combat by Atari, the light cycle scene, and then the scene where Tron has to get into the IO tower while invading guards and grid bugs. Yeah, and that was one of the first finite games. I remember feeding many quarters into it at Rocky and Bullwinkles and at Chuck E. Cheese. And when you start a fresh game, you have five doors and you can pick any door. And it's the, the actual destinations vary from game to game. So you go into one of the mini games. You don't know which it is until you're in it. If you beat that, you go back to the first place. And now there's only four doors available. And when you beat all five, congratulations, you've won the game. Now, that didn't lead to re-releases because those games were actually released before the movie. It was one of the first times that they really looked into marketing like that. So the original Tron game, which actually outgrossed the movie by a significant margin because it was extremely advanced for its time, that came out in May 1982, while the film didn't hit till July. Ah, because the thing here is, because looking at Wikipedia, Discs of Tron came out in 83. But yeah, the uh, television games all came out in 82, so they're probably also part of the promotional thing. The original arcade game and the, the home videos were all d- promoted and released shortly before the movie in terms of the cross-promotion to try and capture that market. Because I figured that'd be a big part of the market who would want to come out and see Tron. Uh, that's true. I mean, next year is 83, and with it comes the video game crash. So thank you, Atari. Yeah. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll deal with that more when we do our ET broadcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but no, as far as I could tell, this wasn't released in, in 83. They just... The movie wasn't a huge success. Like we've said before, it takes two to three times your production budget before it's considered profitable. And this hit $33 million in the domestic gross with a $17 million budget, so almost at that double point. So it was probably close to break-even. So it was certainly worth releasing and keeping out, as Disney has done in pretty much every home video format, to recover costs and get the profitability there. Because when it's that close, it doesn't take much of a home release format to do it. Uh, Not just VHS, but also Laserdisc, DVD, and Blu-ray. And if you listen carefully when you're listening to the the DVD commentary, you could tell it was actually recorded as a Laserdisc commentary. They mention, oh, you've got the Laserdisc at one point, and there's also a pause at the appropriate point in the movie so that if you're watching it on Laserdisc, that would have been when you had to take the disc out and flip the, the disc over to watch the other side. Right? So one guy's talking, somebody else cuts him off, goes, there's a few seconds of silence, flip scenes, and the guy goes, okay, as I was saying. So obviously, like, he was flying down to say, no, we're ready to flip the disc here, don't be talking in the middle of it. And then they flip the disc and keep going. So it has been released, so I'm sure at this point they must have made money off it because they figured it was a safe enough bet to make Tron Legacy. Yeah. And we can talk a bit, talk a bit more about the cultural permeation of this and how it helped lead to Tron Legacy when we get to Tron Legacy, because there have been some attempts to make sort of semi sequels and other mediums to this, video games and that sort of thing. But that's something for a later podcast, I probably bet. It is. So probably, I think we've covered all the bases. Yeah, we should discuss exactly how it did in the tournament itself. Yep. This one actually, I believe, advanced to the round of forty-two. Yes, it did. Tron 
came in right up against the Truman Show, Truman Show beat that, advanced the next round, and lost to the to Forbidden Planet. Yep, and not by a large margin. Either. Yeah, so barely got beat by Shakespeare in space. So yeah, but had it passed that, it would have gone up against Wrath of Khan. At which point, it would have basically got clobbered. Yeah, as much as I really enjoy Tron, I'd have been voting for Khan. Yeah, and this is one of my it's one of my childhood favorites, and it certainly belongs in the tournament. The sequel made it into the tournament as well, and we'll talk about that more in our next podcast. Indeed, but yeah, it did come out initially with pretty good standing. Yep, so... Yeah, I I will definitely say it deserved to take down the Truman Show. Indeed. That Truman Show was enjoyable, but yeah, it, I think it would have been better with different casting, but that's another podcast. And Tron made it into this round, coming out of round one in position 55 out of 384. So it was one step behind the Andromeda strain and one step above A Trip to the Moon from 1902. Which will probably be our shortest podcast when we get to it, since the film itself is under 20 minutes. Yep. Which was very long for 1902, to be fair. Yeah. So it's behind Iron Giant, Time Machine, Secret of Nim, the 1931 Frankenstein, which we've already discussed, Enemy Mind, Dark City, War of the Worlds, the original King Kong, The Thing, which we've discussed, and some higher movies ahead of Trip to the Moon, On the Beach, Man in the White Suit, the 1968 Planet of the Apes, Jurassic Park, Looper, V for Vendetta, and a number of other ones that way. So The Truman Show initially came out in spot 66, and Tron came out in spot 55. Uh. So it, it beat The Truman Show and was expected to based on the first round voting from our readers. Indeed. And when it went up against Forbidden Planet, yeah, it lost as, again, that's the way I voted as well. So it was expected to do that, too. Yeah, so that pretty much, yeah, we got everything covered here, so... Yeah, yeah Forbidden Planet was actually in 10th place, and Wrath of Khan was 23rd. Hmm. So that one was the upset. Yeah, that was actually slightly surprising. I would have thought Wrath of Khan would have placed a little higher earlier on. But hey, it... it overtook Forbidden Planet in the brackets, so... It did, and that's part of what comes down to when you just ask people to vote for above average, average, and below average versus which do you prefer. I'm finding that we do get a lot of statistical upsets in it, which is part of what makes these tournaments fun. Indeed. So those of you listening, we are coming very close to the end of the TV tournament as just as this comes out. So if you don't listen almost right away, that tournament could very well be over. And then, as usual, we'll take a few weeks off and then come back with the next tournament, which hasn't been announced yet. In the meantime, we're going to continue recording podcasts about both the TV and movie results. So we've got a few more of the movie ones lined up, including Tron Legacy, which will be our next podcast. As I said before, we're going to be releasing them about every two weeks through the summer and into the fall, but trying to record them a little faster than that to make sure we've got a backlog and we can maintain that two-week schedule. So next up is Tron Legacy, and after that, we'll see. It will be announced at a later date. So, any final thoughts and words on this, Alex? I think that we've got everything wrapped up. So, All right. So, once again, thank you for listening. You can send any and all feedback to Bureau42Podcasts at gmail.com. You can find the podcast themselves through straight RSS feeds that are linked from Bureau42 on iTunes and now on Stitcher. And that's for all of Bureau42Podcasts. The master audio feed is the only one where you can hear these greatest science fiction film and TV tournament podcasts right now, so we don't have to worry about the feed being decommissioned due to lack of activity in case there's a long pause between them. So, thank you for listening. End of line. You beat me to it. <laughs>